Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. edition of Virtually Speaking Sundays, co-produced by Sherry Reason, creative directed by Mark McKay. Thanks to Pulse Avatar Arts for my avatar and for their avatar support throughout the program's life. I'm here with Jay Rosen of the New York University, who is a journalism professor there, and he's been a guest of the show in the past. It's great to have him back again. And with Stuart Zeckman, who's a Virtually Speaking Sunday panelist on this special edition of Virtually Speaking Sundays. I want to take a second to thank Jay in particular for helping us bring in some great guests. He was the person who helped me find Chris Anderson, C.W. Anderson of CUNY Staten Island, who's been on a couple of times and been great. And lastly, I'd like to thank him for the conversation he had with Jim Fallows a little while ago, because that conversation led to a series of programs involving the role of candor versus transparency and diplomacy. That WikiLeaks discussion turned in part on uh, something Fallows said about the State Department being very upset about the cables opening up. And so, Jay, we're very grateful to you here. You've really enhanced our content by both your contributions and your contacts, and I wanted to thank you. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. We're here tonight because we want to talk about Jay's work on the media and, and Stuart's writing the commentary about the media and how those things come together and what's happening with them. One of the most interesting things that served as a touchstone lately was the obituaries and other materials written about David Broder following his demise. And um, there was just a column in the Washington Post Ombud page, which I'll mm-hmm. paste into chat in just a second, where the Ombud called David Broder a brand worth replicating. And Jay had some commentary about that in Twitter and, um, if, if I'm remembering correctly, on PressThink.org. And so I'd like to start with that. So what do you think about that idea of David Broder? a brand worth replicating, Jay? Well, what struck me about this column by the Obmansman is um, how unbelievably insular it was. The Ombudsman is, in other newspapers, called the Reader's Representative. At the Times, it's called the Public Editor because the Times can never call something the same thing the Washington Post calls it. And the Ombudsman's whole job is to represent the users to the Washington Post. And in this column, which is the main vehicle the Ombudsman has uh, for addressing issues and problems, David Broder is addressed not from the point of view of the readers, but from the point of view of the professional community of journalists to whom he has always been a legendary figure. And that was the first thing that struck me about this, that this isn't about the readers. This is about the professional fraternity of journalists 
which lost one of its own when Broder died. And I understand that people who admired Broder tremendously, and there are many of them in journalism, are still in the stage of grieving for this loss. And so it isn't realistic to expect them when, for example, writing columns immediately after his death or giving speeches at his funeral or reflecting on his memorial service for them uh, to be critical. But the Abbasim is a different situation. His job is not to speak from within the community of journalists, but to speak to and for the concerns of of readers. So that's number one. The second thing that struck me about it is you would never know from reading this column that anybody had ever been critical of Broder at all. And in fact, especially over the last 10 to 15 years of his work where he was primarily a columnist for the Post, he frequently enraged people, especially on the left, but also a lot of other people who saw his um, attempt to navigate between extremes as a kind of phony centrism. And that dissatisfaction with him was as, as if those people didn't exist and that sentiment didn't exist. As well as the fact that the entire history of the political blogosphere, which commented upon and saw Broder as the embodiment of a certain mentality that the political blogosphere has critiqued endlessly. It was as high if Broder. that, did, yeah, high Broderism. It was as if that didn't exist either. And so, it's just an astounding level of insularity. So that that was my main reaction. What what was your reactions to it? Well, I had a great deal of the reaction that you had. That it, this was this was striking for the obvious solidarity that was being shown by the supposed reader advocate user advocate um, for the institution itself, essentially. And and as he says, a brand. And and Mm -hmm. that's the thing that that struck me the most about this this piece when when I read it, was not not so much that that there was a lack of of, of critique. And as you you said, you know, it's still raw for them, and of course it would be. You know, I'm I'm sure there are are portraits being hung now, right now, you know, as we speak, that, Mm -hmm. that are vast football fields of oil painted gloss in gold leaf frame over at that place for Broder. So I don't, I don't expect them to, in this piece, take criticisms and, and outline them and to do sort of a fair criticism of, of Broder. I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't expect them to do that. Um, and I don't think it's that revealing that they did. But what was revealing, what was so interesting, was that this was an appeal, a naked appeal to authority. Mm-hmm. This was the canonization of the high priest of high broderism. And it was done in this particular way. What's so interesting is that it brought to mind your phrase, the phrase that, that I've, I've read from, from you so often, and it's so apt uh, so much of the time, the advertisement of objectivity or the advertisement of innocence by mm-hmm. those in the journalism trade. Because it's the brand, of high broderism that is worth replicating and, and in the post case and in journalism's, you know, national journalism's case in, uh, generally, it's worth advertising. That's right. <laughs> because it's a brand. Right. Right. It's, it's literally a brand, according to the 
well, maybe we should take a minute and and uh, and deconstruct, uh, to use an economic term, what this brand Broder uh, actually is. Like, what what does this brand stand for? Um, I, I'd like to. I'd yeah, like to. Uh, I mean, w- one thing I could add to this discussion, I'd be interested in what you think the brand is. But from the point of view of the uh, community professional journalist, it's very important for people to understand. I think a lot of people who came upon Broder late in his career or through the blogosphere's concept of high Broderism don't know this, but one of the reasons he was held in such high regard for so many years was that he actually did something that many of the political reporters who followed him or his peers at the time didn't do, which is he went into homes and talked to voters uh, when he was covering elections, a lot of voters, and he did this regularly over a long period of time. And the rest of the the press, the people that I now call the Church of the Savvy, were much more likely to want to talk to politicians or political pros and to get their sense of the voters through polls. And so part of the reason he was venerated is that he did this thing going to living rooms and talking to voters that a lot of them weren't actually that interested in doing. <laughs> uh, and it's, it's, it's referred to glancingly in that piece where he talks about Broder's belief that elections belong to the voters, which is indeed an important thing to hold. And that's one of the things about his legacy that is is truly fine. Um but he stopped doing that a long time ago, and, and in his later years when he was just a columnist, he was much more of a pundit. He would he would talk to uh, politicians still, and he would talk to operatives. And I think this was mentioned in the column too, and it was, it was a big theme of the memorial service, which I also found really fascinating for the canonization uh, part you mentioned. Uh, Broder always saw himself and was seen and, and wanted to be seen as a reporter. You know, and this idea that he was totally without pretense, that he never wanted to rise above the humble position of the reporter, is another part of his appeal because many of the people who venerate Broder actually quit that a long time ago. <laughs> you know, now they're pundits, they're analysts, they're talk show hosts, they're columnists, and they don't do that much reporting. But reporting, and the kind, especially the kind of Reporting that journalists call shoe leather reporting, which is the idea that you you wear out the soles of your shoes because you you walk so much going from office to office and home to home and interview to interview. That is actually yeah, that's the only legitimate source of authority in journalism, is specifically journalistic expertise is not authority. Shoe leather reporting is authority. So that's part of the brand, but that it, that goes way back before most of the blogosphere comes upon Broder. So what else is involved in this brand? Well, the thing that I'd have to add to that is that there's something else that comes across in this that is really related, is very much related, and might seem ancillary, but it's not. I think it's integral, or I contend at least, that it's really intimately a part of the worldview that that you've just expressed. And it has a political dimension to it, which means that it's, it's sort of uh, difficult, especially very difficult, it seems, for, for journalists to, to speak about, especially in public. And that's the idea of being 
a latter-day advocate for ordinary working Americans, for ordinary Americans, period. That's something you'd have to try to do. That's something that would be um, – because reporters are no longer a part of the, the people that they uh, – nor, normal people, ordinary people, the readers. They're not, they're not of their readership. In right. theory, you know, if, if we were watching an old movie, if we were watching like a Frank Capra film, if we were watching like a, you know, uh, Smith Goes to Washington, if we were watching something like that, we would get immediately that reporters were part of the working class. Right. hear their accents, right? You, you, you'd hear them say, see, Mike, let's we'll get that copy out right tomorrow. You know, they, they'd have that sort of accent as opposed to the Swells accent, the, you know, the, the East Coast Swell accent of, of those mm-hmm. films. And we'd know right away that they, they were just people. They were right. working stiffs, right? They were, they were just working people. And so this is, it's interesting that Broder has to go out. It's this recognition that there's this post-journalist as part of working stiffs doing ordinary work feeling the same way that you do about the bosses, uh, it's post that. He has to go out and actually talk to real people because journalists are no longer real people. They're no right. longer... Right, and, and he, so he, so he connects journalism to the people that it is supposedly representing at a point where that kind of authenticity is in doubt. And is truly gone. But right. there's more to it than that. There's, there's, more, there's more to it than that because... It just so happens that this sort of authenticity as derived from contact with the, you know, the real folks out there who have bread and butter issues, who are sitting around the kitchen table, et cetera, who will, who will speak honestly and, and simply this out to a man like David Broder who's going to really try to get the sense of who they are and what their concerns are. That idea is also part of a, a whole political movement's ideas about politics in general, and it, it's expressed in the term the radical middle. Have you ever heard yeah, of that? Yeah, yeah, oh sure. Yeah, the radical middle, yeah. Right. That's a, right. just just for, for the folks out there who, who who don't necessarily know this, this is a term that is, is used by people in a certain who have a certain political bent, who have a certain political ideology called the third way. And it's a very self conscious thing where they, they, they desperately try to appeal to independent voters and they, they sort of mythologize and fetishize independent, nonpartisan, people who they imagine to be representative of, the, of themselves, but just in ordinary life. And Broder's fetishization of that ordinary voter and that appeal to that sort of authority is transferred directly into this ideology of the radical middle. And so when Joe Klein writes a piece in Newsweek in 1995 called Stalking the Radical Middle, in which he says, the old Politics of the New Deal are dead. Nobody cares about that. And yet conservatism is too wild and too untamed and too populist. We can't have that and govern effectively. It's terrible. And, oh, God, they might take us to war again. But we're not afraid of war. And we're not, we're not hippies. We're not pacifists. We, we want Democrats to be strong, says Joe Klein. He's inculcated a great deal of that authority and, and brought it to another dimension that's a political and ideological dimension. Am I making any sense at all? Yeah, I, I think it's the difference between centrism as almost a um, a mathematical construct in which you plot the uh, extreme on the left, plot the extreme on the right, and then with your compass you sort of determine where where the middle is. That's one sense in which you, journalists are sometimes construed as centrists. Uh, But then there's another sense that you're talking about where 
centrism actually has a political ideology that is it's related to this sense of between extremes because it, it's saying that there's something wrong with extreme left ideology and there's something wacky, as you said, with extreme right ideology. But this notion of the radical middle tries to give a little bit more political content to centrism. And Klein, I think, is especially representative of that. Broder was always, I thought, speaking much more in code. One of the weird things about him is that after he stopped being a political reporter in any sort of full-time sense, he still had his column. That was the main thing that he did, was write this column. And the column for the Washington Post is found in the opinion section. But all the other columnists in the opinion section, you could place them politically. right? And because they're opinion columnists, they were open about their beliefs, right? George Will is a Tory conservative. Uh, E.J. Dion is a you know, good government liberal, right? Uh, well, I wouldn't actually say that. I'd, I'd actually take great issue with that. Um, but finish, finish your, your point. I, I don't think that, that they're representative of uh, – and I don't think they're open about it. And I don't think that Milbank is a liberal. You know, I, don't, I, I think that there's a different well, Milbank's definition of Milbank's a problem. <laughs> uh, I, I was trying to pick two who are, who are not problems. Milbank's definitely a problem. But anyway – you can't really tell where Broder is politically. I mean, I can, except, I can. except for the notion of centrism. Right, um, exactly. And, Sorry. Yeah, and his belief that the American people mistrust extremes and also that they don't make misjudgments. They, in a sense, they can't be wrong. Well, I think that's that's a complex statement. Because on the one hand, it's true that voters can't be wrong. On the other hand, it is not true that ideologues who vote in primaries for their partisan candidates... Well, they're very wrong. (laughs) Right, right, they're wrong. ...are as wrong as wrong can be. Not only are they wrong, they're they're undemocratically wrong. They're, They're bad voters. They, yeah, they're, they're voters. bad voters. <laughs> we got to get rid of voting. They undermine the democratic process by which right. nothing really changes. Right. Um, which is fascinating. Because more than that, it, go on. That, there, there's sorry, Jay. There's also the notion that, and you can see it especially now, where the Beltway and, and Manhattan Press is gripped by this notion that ordinary Americans have some medicine some harsh medicine coming to them and yes. that they just don't know what is good for them and they just don't know. They're so obviously ignorant as to the facts of what needs to be done and how they have to, to, to fight it and suffer and suffer and take their medicine. And so that that's also involved in, in Broder's formulations as well, this, this formulation of being, of reporting on it, and they can't be wrong except when they are. Right. And and it, it, it's democracy, except when it isn't, and that the people know what they want and they're right, except when we all know that they're wrong. <laughs> right, right. Well, that they have to take their medicine. Right. Well, see, one of, the, one of the great advantages of having banished ideology from your professional outlook in 
in, a, in an official way as mainstream journalists do because they're not allowed to be ideological is that you can have a completely incoherent ideology. <laughs> Whereas if you had to explain your ideology or explain your beliefs or say this is where I'm coming from, some of these contradictions would be more blatant. But since the whole thing is covert in a way, it, it's completely illogical in many ways because political journalists never have to answer for their ideology because officially they don't have one. Officially, they don't. And yet, we have heard recently, it has been revealed to us, amazingly, by the folks at at Politico, the big guys at Politico, uh, (laughs) uh, that in fact, contrary to everything we've ever learned before, and certainly contrary to the um, news user advocate at at the Post who's looking out for us, because the spin stops there, um, at the Post, uh, contrary to that, uh, apparently the press corps is is biased, just towards centrism, towards bipartisan centrism. Did you, and so I, I guess I'm bringing this up, and, and it's un, it's unfortunate because I've been living with this living with this column by by Harrison Bandai for quite some time. What what are your thoughts on their column, the revelation to all of us that the reason why the press corps seems to be in, in, in some unison agreement about something, at least in terms of the acceptance of underlying premises right. and the un- unwillingness to challenge underlying premises. Go ahead. I, I don't want to over-explain that. Go, go ahead. What, 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 what are your thoughts on, on that revelation that the press has centrist biases? Well, I remember when um, Van Hay and Harris left the Washington Post to start Politico, mm-hmm. um, I actually interviewed Harris at my blog about this move, which I found very interesting. It was one of the first indications of the slide of the Washington Post, because the Washington Post had been from um, around 1976 to 2004, had been you know a destination newspaper. It was a place very few people ever left unless they left to write books. Um, it was considered to be, you know, at the, the zenith of, of uh, political journalism, especially if you're a political reporter and interested in politics the way both Van Hay and Harris were. So it was kind of a shock when they left, and I, uh, so I interviewed Harris about it. One of the things they said they wanted to do when they started Politico was, in their words, um, you know, pull back the curtain on how Washington really works, you know. And I sort of chuckled at that because that is exactly what every pundit thinks they're doing all the time, you know. But that's what, even that's the, what the psychotic people, Maureen Dowd is. Yeah, I mean, that's what she thinks she's doing every week. Feelings. Yeah, yeah, right. she's pulling back the curtain, you know. I mean, the, the hapless panelists on Washington Week in Review believe right. they're pulling back the curtain, you know. When, yes, they are. By when saying what's most likely, yeah, what's right. most likely to happen. <laughs> exactly. So, so I said, you know, yeah, right. And every once in a while, they write one of these columns that does kind of say what everyone knows but no one ever tells. And so this, so this is one. And so, so their description is, that political journalists are biased towards any gestures that can be seen as bipartisan that seem to bridge the the divide between uh, the parties, that seem to um, represent 
a kind of political maturity where, yeah, this will anger our base and it will anger your base, but it just needs to be done, um, which is something very associated with Broder. And that if you can maneuver into a position where you appear to be doing some of those things, then you'll get good press. So that that was their argument. And, and I think, go ahead. Well, I think what's going on here is is something that I've never quite written about because I've never been able to quite figure out the language for it. But if you try to go a couple layers below what Van Hay and Harris are saying, it's it's something like this: journalists are in a constant contest with other players in the system for defining what will constitute realism, what will constitute the real in politics. And most of the time they feel they have a really easy time of it with partisan politicians because they're always ludicrously surreal in their claims and demands, right? I mean, somebody, yeah, somebody like Dennis Kucinich you know, is hilarious to political journalists, just like uh, somebody like Michelle Bachman is, because not because they're willing to say their ideas suck. They don't go there. They just think they're hilariously out of touch with the mythical center, right? And as we always know, elections are won in the middle, except when they're not, like with a radical like George Bush. Then they're not, you know. But <laughs> so. Right. So they're in a contest with others for defining the real, and lots of times they feel it's no contest. It's between political journalists and Dennis Kucinich, no contest. Between uh, political journalists and Michelle Bachman, no contest. But uh, between political journalists and think tank experts at Brookings and AEI, uh, well, well maybe, you know, that's a little harder, right? Between political journalists and bloggers, no contest. That's why between political between political journalists and those who have the institutional levers and power to declare that some policy or outcome is inevitable. Right. So there's reality to come. Right. So the 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 people who can make reality because they have the power to do so because they run the country, right? That, those are the people political journalists want to get on the phone, <laughs> right? right. They're, they're the people they want to get close to because they have more reality-defining juice than journalists do. And so, when, so, so, I'm, so I'm getting around to the center. So when, mm-hmm. when politicians who ordinarily are playing to the base, repeating the slogans, playing the music, the mantras of their parties – when they start to get close to one another, they become sort of part of this contest to define the real. And they're coming closer to the journalist world now, and that's why they give them a good press. That's very interesting. Jay Rosen, you wrote a very, very important piece in my, in my mind. Uh, I think you know, there's, there's relative consensus on that, uh, at least amongst the people that I respect. In 2010, and and the name of this piece was Clowns to the Left of Me, Jokers to the Right, on the actual ideology of the American press. And this was up at, at your blog. You say that there is a simple explanation um, given for 
the ideology of the press corps. The movement conservatives all say in unison, the, the great mighty Wurlitzer revving up, it's the liberal media. Right. And then, then the left says, and I'm quoting from you here, look, it's very simple. The political press ultimately serves the interests of the people who own it, the corporate capitalists, the, one with the, money and, the ones with money and power and access to politicians, the people who run things and always have. And so what's interesting is that Jay Aykroyd had the Philadelphia Daily News' um, Will Bunch on his program in February. And Will Bunch had this to say, actually, about the ideology of the press corps coming from somebody who's in it. But what is a factor is the fact that most journalists, uh, at least on social issues, tend to be pretty liberal. They're mostly pro-choice. They're mostly... uh, uh, and I, I'm basing this not just on my own personal experience, but also on like surveys been done of journalists. You know, buying mail on social issues, and economic issues is a little bit different, especially when you get inside the Beltway and you get these journalists who make huge salaries. Unlike me, uh, they, they obviously <laughs> tend to be more conservative. But but generally, there's this perception with that that, that to be honest has something to it that on a, on a personal gut level. Journalists have liberal instincts. I mean, I mean, why wouldn't they? I mean, I mean, liberals are supposed to question authority, and journalists are supposed to question authority. I mean, there should be some kind of overlap there, you know. But here's the point, Jay. Just let me finish because it's complicated. But I just want to finish this point because it's, it's very important. Is because all the journalists of my generation, you know, the Woodward and Bernstein generation, grew up in this into this church of objectivity, and uh, so basically, it, it became this kind of religion that the ability to suppress one's personal ideas. Particularly if they tend to, you know, or not particularly, but if they tend to be liberal, to suppress these in order to pre- present this balanced journalism was more important than, than your than your views. And so, because basically what happens is human nature is to overcompensate. These people over, you know, in order to show that they were biased, people who were mildly liberal in the media give way too much leeway to conservatives because they don't understand conservatism, but they say. Well, I don't even I don't even understand if what these people are saying makes sense. But to show how balanced I am, I'm going to give them a lot of airtime to explain it because that's the because if I don't, I'm not being balanced. So that's that's Will Bunch, mm-hmm. and what what's interesting about that to me is that he seems to agree number one with me and with you. He says it's complex. So mm-hmm. he says to Jay, Hey, hey, wait a second, I got to try to explain this. And because it's complex, it doesn't fit into the stories that the ideologies that we tend to recognize, movement conservatism and movement liberalism, left and right, not center, I'm leaving that out, it, it doesn't, doesn't fit into the stories that those ideological proponents tell each other about right, what's exactly. going on. Right. Um, what do you agree with uh, and what do you disagree with? in terms of what Will said, especially with his saying that, well, journalists really, really are liberals, basically, when, it, when you get right down to um, it. Well, I pretty much go along with, with what Will said, except that I would emphasize more that issues that are not social issues, journalists tend to be radically skeptical of any reformer who or radical who dares to challenge the basic economic order of the United States. And they, I don't think it would be proper to say that they're economic conservatives, but they're certainly completely at peace with the power structure. And 
they're socially liberal only in the sense that they live in cities where everyone is pretty much that way. And that, that's why Daniel O'Krant, in one of the most important pieces ever about this subject, said that, the, you know, let's be real, the New York Times is a liberal newspaper. And, of course, the right wing went crazy with that statement and, and um, turned it into something it wasn't. But what he meant was that, yeah, journalists are socially liberal because they reflect the cities that their work uh, comes from. The New York Times reflects New York, you know, and you don't find Bible Belt conservatives in New York. And it's the same thing with Washington, Philadelphia, where Will works, you know, the Boston Globe, Los right. Angeles. Right. And if you took a look at the views of political journalists in um, Colorado Springs or Wichita, Kansas, that I bet you'd work. find there might be some differences there. So that's one thing. But where I really agree with Will is, as you know, is, is his sentence, you know, this is complicated. As I don't think the political ideology of the American mainstream press fits into the story of the left or the right or the profession of journalism. And that's why, as I say in that piece, I've had to come up with my own language for discussing it because I don't think any of the inherited vocabularies work. I think that we should talk. I would love to have you explain some of the key, you lay them out as bullet points. Uh, he, you know, he said, she said, uh, savviness, the view from nowhere, and, and you've invented, and all of those are terms that Jay Rosen has come up with in coming, coming up with a language to try to describe something that the participants, generally speaking, try to obscure through right. their own language conventions, through their own processes, and through their own ceremonies and, and rituals and affirmations of their own perception of, uh, of their own identities. But what I'd like to add to what Will said is this other concept that isn't really a standard left critique, and it's certainly not a standard right critique, accepting the idea that anybody to the left of Mussolini is a socialist in movement rightism. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that, that generally speaking, they love to call anybody who's not themselves uh, the left. They even call, call each other liberals as right. majorities, et cetera. So that aside, on the right, on the left we have this story about how corporate interests are being maintained, et cetera, et cetera. And as Will said in, the, in, in his uh, interview with Jay, he said, you know, cor the, the whole corporate control thing doesn't really happen on a day-to-day decision-decision story-by-story basis. It just right. doesn't, it's not really, people aren't making decisions. Oh, do I print this? Do I not print this? Is, is my corporate overlord GE going to, you know, it's not really how things work according to the, the real world, the people who participate. Right. But what's not being talked about or what's not being said is that there's this other political ideology called third way. Mm -hmm. And funnily enough, strangely enough, oddly enough, coincidentally enough, it involves a certain level of social liberalism, right? It's right. pro-choice, at least nominally pro-choice. They're not activists. They don't care. They wouldn't, you know, they're, they're not out there protesting, you know, at David Souter's nomination. They, they, they think that's a joke. But they're, but they're nominally left on social issues. They're tolerant. They'll, they'll eventually repeal the law that they put into place to 
cope with, you know, gay people and the military, and they'll eventually get around to repealing the law that they put in place to deal with the whole marriage equality question. And, and so, yeah, they're, they're socially liberal people, and they swim in a culture of relative, relative to Kansas, relative to Colorado Springs, social liberalism. They do, and yet there's this whole economic question. There's this whole other way of looking at it in which they, they essentially view the programs or, or the, the social policies, the social insurance mechanisms of the New Deal and its regulatory apparatus, et cetera, as a, as a colossal failure, mm-hmm. as something that's to be torn down. Right. And they're actually pretty radical about this. And yet they call themselves pragmatists. Right. They call themselves moderates. Right. And they call themselves non-ideological or right. post-ideological. Yeah. And right. so does that remind you, does that, that description of that political ideology, that's, that's, a, that's really a huge part, maybe half, maybe less than half of the Democratic Party, of the major party, and that runs everything. And it's actually in charge. There's a new Democrat in the White House. New right. Democrats being third-way Democrats, being the, the New Democrat Network, New Democrat Coalition. Um, does that remind you? Does it, do those, are those things related? Is Will Bunch missing the fact that liberals aren't really – he's describing an old kind of liberal, old kind of liberal normalcy, cultural liberalism kind of, but that's moved on and is actually quite radical in as much as they – want to do away with social security as it exists. Does that make sense? I, well, I think they're pro- – I would put it this way, Stuart. I think they're vulnerable to third-wayism more than that they are believers in it because the, the self-image of a political journalist is that they're not really a believer at all in anything. That is, they're always prepared to be skeptical. You know, they – mistrust ideologies of all kinds. And I think maybe where their radicalism comes from, and this this also would require much more thinking and more of a post because I could only really state it clearly when I write it. Um, but I think where their radicalism comes from is actually comes from their irony in the sense that I, journalists are ironists. This, that's why I developed this uh, this concept of savviness. And the irony comes from this stance that, well, uh, you know, we, we were told that there would be this war on poverty, but there's still the poor, you know. Uh, we were right. told that uh, we were told that supply side economics would, uh, you know, result in more revenues, but it turned out to be the opposite. And we were told that, uh, you know, we would invade Iraq and democracy would come. To the Middle East, but look, it's a disaster, you know. And and there's this kind of breezy cynicism that intersects culturally now with a lot of other deeper currents in in American culture, like the detective who's seen everything, you know, the cop, right. the cop who's like seen the worst of human. The morgue beat. The guy who's yeah. done the morgue beat. Yeah. yeah, yeah, the morgue, the the guy at the morgue, right? Or the, the the carnival barker, the guy who, who sees the says people there's a sucker in marks. Yeah, right. exactly. Right. That people with a jaundiced view of human nature. People who who see, you know, despite people's plans and great ideas, they wind up or they all wind up dead, or or they wind up in jail or whatever. And there there's this 
pervasive sense of irony is that's what you, that's what they said, but the reality is, you know. Uh, and if you take that far enough, you can become a radical, right? Because you can you can sort of easily jettison hundreds of years of learning. You can you can call entire institutions beside the point. Uh, there was just this piece in the New York Times today that enraged me, and one of, some of my the people who follow me on Twitter pointed it out about education reform. Oh yeah. Which, <laughs> did you happen to see this thing? Which, I, I did because of you, because I follow yeah. you on, on Twitter, and, and I read it, of course. And I just want to strangle this this writer, who's they're sort of cleansing their hands of the whole political struggle over over education by saying that well the the reformers who you know who claim charter schools will do it you know are like impossible and the people who are defending the schools are impossible and both of them are just bullshitting us all the time and they're talking about these false dichotomies and and it's reality what, is unknowable and reality is unknowable know. unfixable right and when you when you pound this message day after day week after week you can end up advocating some pretty crazy stuff and i think right. that's it's through that kind of irony and and also kind of a contempt for political ideology that you can get to what you call the radical middle but it's very complicated because even though this is a form of politics it's all done under the sign of denying that you have any politics and that's what makes it so tricky to analyze. Well, if you, if you go back and, and look at, at the Obama campaign prior to, to his taking office, there was a really revealing, uh, I think it was CBS News interview of, of him in which they, they asked him straight out, are you a liberal or a progressive, a socialist? What? What are you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, do you what do you think? What is, your, what is your viewpoint? Where do you come from? What's your perspective? What's your view from? And Obama said, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. I, I'm not going to get into that whole thing of that sort of stuff. Although he did have his staff later call the reporter up and, and clarify, of course the president's not a socialist. Of course he's not that. <laughs> right. Well, that's, that's out of bounds. Yeah. what he is. And by not answering the question, he did not mean to imply that he wasn't answering the question about socialism because he's not. And that, how dare you ask that question? Right. Do you find that a coincidental Thing, that that's just you know two alarm clocks going off one after the other an hour set you know or is there some relationship between the highest elites and the highest levers of power in the Democratic Party and in the messaging apparatus of the Democratic Party having basically the same kind of denial the same well, sort of thing yeah yeah I think there's, a, there's an overlap there sure yeah but I I think what's more powerful is um, this is how professionals at it look at politics. They don't attach themselves too strongly to what what they would derisively call labels. They don't want to be hemmed in by a, a prefab ideology. A good political operative or, say, a political consultant has to kind of identify with one or the other wing of politics. I mean, most of them that don't cross party lines, but 
within their their coalition, they want to maintain maximum flexibility. And this is why... And the conservatives are like this? The conservative well, the pro- conservative are- professional operatives would be like this. Okay. I'm talking about people like the like the Frank Luntzes of the world. And Mike the, Murphy. The, yes, Mike Murphy, the people you see on Meet the Press, the people who make a living as consultants who, who advise candidates. It's to their advantage to have these kind of um, loosely held beliefs. Uh, and, and these are people that political journalists often identify the most with. And like I once tried to, tried to write about this by saying, um, if you had a bunch of, let's say we, we dragged 400 of our political journalists up to, to Harvard or something for a seminar, and we asked them to raise their hands, how many of you think you'd be qualified to be Secretary of Treasury in this room? Maybe one person might raise his hand. Uh, how many people here think they'd be qualified to be Secretary of State? And if Ted Koppel was there, he would raise his hand, but probably nobody else would. Um, and how many of you think you would be qualified to be president? You know, maybe Joe Klein would raise his hand, but I, I don't think anybody else would. Uh, then, maybe. 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 Maybe one or two. And then if you said, well, how many of you think you'd be qualified to be a strategist for president, like David Axelrod or somebody like him? They'd all raise their hand. Every one of them would raise their hand because they look at the political world the same way those people do. Jay Newton Small would stand up and raise both of her hands. Yeah, say, I mean, they would jump out of their seats. Yeah, you right. see what I mean? And, and there's right. a reason for that. There's a reason for that because, and that's that's why I developed this concept of savviness, because savviness is the ideology that unites all those players, the handlers, the consultants, the pollsters, the really professional politicos, and the journalists. And when they're in the bar in New Hampshire in uh, January of the uh, election year, they celebrate that. You know, there's there's another time they celebrate it. This, this drives me crazy, Stuart. At, at every four years, at the conclusion of the, the presidential race, about three four months after the election is over, Harvard's Institute of Politics, which is a think tank within the Kennedy School of Government holds this post-mortem on the campaign. And the participants are the campaign managers. Yeah, the campaign managers from the campaigns, like the Steve Schmitz of the world in the last campaign, and pollsters, and and the journalists. Right. And they get together, and they go over what happened, right? Right. And... And it's a closed-door meeting. It's off the record. And one year, I was a you and me. Yeah, to me, right. We can't get there, and there's no, you know, there's no record of it. There's they, they actually do make like a, it's not a transcript, but they make like a little booklet afterwards, which where they the parts that are kind of publicly acceptable. Oh, and they're live tweeting it while they're there, and they're going on afterwards, and they're emailing on their Blackberries afterwards to everybody who they know. Yeah, right. They're letting their they're letting their buddies know about it. It's closed to uh, news users. It's closed to the public, right, to us. One year, I was a fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School. So I'm, like, at this institution, and I asked if I could go to this meeting, to this event, and I couldn't get into this event. So what I think happens there is they kind of adjust the campaign narrative, you see? They kind of reconcile 
themselves to each other. So that when Steve Schmidt says in a conference call that was recorded during the uh, 08 campaign that the New York Times is now working for the Obama campaign. It has become part of the Obama campaign. And he makes this claim, you know, seriously, or sounding seriously. Because of the story they did about the whiff of a fair or whatever, yes. Yes, and other things that that had built up. Right, right. So later on, you know, four months after the campaign, they get together and they laugh about it. Right, well, they're honest, basically. They've taken off their operative hats. They've taken uh, off their reality-denying hats. And they can all get together and really talk about how much of a douche Mark Penn really is and how right. much, you know, you know <laughs> he's a, such a liar. And, and they, everybody knows he's a liar, I think. Is that what you're saying, on? Yeah, they adjust to each other because they're actually part of the same team. And we don't see this. They, and nobody and we in don't the see public this. knows Exactly, this. exactly. And nobody if somebody like me wants to get in, you know, and I have, I have a Ph.D. And, and I study the press. I'm a professor. You know, I have a million reasons why I would want to be in that room. Uh-huh. And I think some qualifications for the job, right? <laughs> I can't get in because it's I, a closed I, circuit. I think a lot of us would want to yeah. be able to know what people are really thinking and really saying and really mean because we all know that there is an emperor and he has no clothes and that political press corps are paid essentially to say that the emperor does have clothes and then to discuss, is he going to wear this type of shoe or is he going to wear this type of shoe that day and what's most likely? And ordinary people can see, Jay, that that there is a difference between themselves and the press that's talking to them in a voice that they recognize is not their own. And when Jon Stewart gets on television and he mocks the convention's uh, and mocks the tone and mocks the presentation and mocks the theater. He's not just – or the Onion Network does the same thing or Saturday Night Live. Right. Jane, you ignorant slut, does the same thing. People recognize that it's not just the theater that they're being exposed to, that the artifice of it. It's also that there's this weird, other, objective, anthropological, pompous, elite, liberal press corps yeah, that's absolutely. talking to them yeah. as if – they know something that ordinary people don't. That's right, and that, I think that's that's totally true. And the really insidious part is where, and this this is the essence of savviness, is when those people who know that there's a lot of mistrust built up toward them speak to us, let's say on television, about the American voter right, the public, and try to get us into their game by speculating, for example, about which ploys, images, and themes might work. Right? The inside baseball. Like yeah, a, the inside the baseball. Club. Yes, right. And so what they're trying to do, you see, is shatter the solidarity citizen to citizen, and gets at least some of the audience into their way of 
of looking at the world, in which your fellow citizens become the objects of political technique. That's an amazing point. Probably that works to a certain degree. In really highly self-aware communities, like say in Iowa or New Hampshire, where the people there really think about the voters, they really do think about the electability nationwide. When they start talking in that way, they're doing it. Right, right. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. They're they're part of that. Yes, it, the the idea is to shatter that that whole. We're suspicious of you. We we distrust you. We recognize that you're not one of us. You're not speaking. You're speaking at us. You, yeah. It's 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 almost like you know in management speak in in large corporate organizations. Yeah. What Dilbert satirizes. Right. Right. Exactly. It's it's like this speak this like bizarre thing, and that's what happens on Meet the Press. Is that's why um, Culture of Truth, a panelist on Virtually Speaking Sundays, has the Bible speak translations. Right. And that's why that's so successful. Do you sure. read the Bible Speak translations? Oh, yeah, I've seen them. They're hilarious. Yeah. Right, they're hilarious. And the reason why they're hilarious is because we all know that what they're saying is a matter of high ceremony culture. Yes. And, not, and, and, and isn't us. It's completely foreign to us, and we can recognize that. That's a pretty amazing, amazing thing. And yet, when they're confronted by movement conservatives who say, well, look at them. They're different from you, America. You can see America. Look at your look with your own eyes, America. Look right. what we're all laughing at. They're different. They're not you. They're right. liberals. The press doesn't have an answer for that except to say, we need to support the Broder brand. Yes. <laughs> we need to advertise more. We need to That's have right. many more marketing campaigns. Well, this to is market where... ourselves as not liberals. The culture war has completely confounded the Church of the Sami. And with that, I have to go. I'm five minutes late. So thanks very much. Thanks so much. I have I've enjoyed this greatly. I really appreciate you coming on Virtually Speaking Sundays and, and going over this. And I, and I hope to speak with you again sometime. And we'll really actually maybe go point by point over your yeah, let's uh, do it again. ideology of the press corps. And, and maybe we, you can hear some examples of third-way premises in the press corps. My pleasure. Bye, guys. Sir, anything you want to add? I'm going to have to listen to this four or five times before I'm getting it all. There was a lot of meat. To wrap this up, the main thing that I want to say in in summary uh, about this is that, as you can, I hope everybody listening can tell, it's not that Jay Rosen and I were having an argument in which I was saying to him, look, the press is obviously third way. Crap, Fareed Zakari says he's third way. He says he's a third way heavy. I mean, he says, I believe in the third way. These columnists, Joe Klein, they say that they're third way. It's not even that they try to hide it when they, when they reach the point that they're actually pundits or columnists. The point being that I wasn't arguing with him saying, look, look, they are. This is, what, this is the only explanation. It's simple. They're third well, way. You know, Stuart, it's I don't really, know. If you, just, just, ahead, just, you know, you may have missed um, Digby's post about the show. Did you see that? Mm, which show? Today's just about today. No, yeah, I didn't. She, I, no, I didn't. She said uh, tonight's virtually speaking should be interesting. Rosen, of course, is one of the premier press critics in the nation, and Zekman has developed an intriguing thesis about ideological centrism. This could be enlightening, and I think well, that I think that Jay hadn't really looked at it from this angle either. And I think that it worked out very well for that reason. I, I, I hope so. But the, the, the main point I want to say is that that I agree very much with with Jay Rosen that it's complicated. And I said this to Digby, actually. When Digby was on the Virtually Speaking Sundays program as a panelist uh, last year with me, but I put it to her as, a, as an explanation for the Democratic Party elite as opposed to, say, the press corps elite, the national press corps elite, as, as I did with Jay Rosen. 
which is that it's not that they're not venal. It's not that they're not corrupt. It's not that they're not in the pay of corporate interests. It's not that they're not all the things that we imagine about them. It's not that, that, that those things aren't true to, to a large degree. Just the way that when Will Bunch says, yeah, they're, they're really liberals, that there's something to that perception, that's also kind of true as well. But the thing that I'm trying to say is that in addition to all of these explanations, that they're venal, that they're corrupt, that they're, you know, that they're more right-wing than you, that they're cowards, in addition to that explanation, we ought to consider this other explanation too, that there's something also to this explanation that they follow this weird political ideology that they don't talk about because they deny they have any ideology. Whether they're New Democrats like Obama who say, I'm, I'm not you know, going to talk about my ideology, or whether they're journalists who say are sitting somehow across from Bill Sapphire on Meet the Press and yet are not left. Does that make sense, Jay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no, an additional explanation for these things besides the one simple one that we tend to apply, and that that's all I'm saying is not that you're wrong, but that this could be possible too? Well, the the point that I was trying to get to in the, in, in the chat stream over here was that there is, when he was talking about the political operatives, I think he was making an important point in supporting what you're thinking about, and that is, is that there is this kind of meritocratic democracy-hating, suspicious of voters as being ignorant louts who only value other elite opinions. And so Jay Carney can bounce back and forth between the administration and Time magazine. You know, George Stephanopoulos can be a campaign manager and a TV guy. Because as Jay was saying, they do the same things in a certain way. And that thing that they do is profoundly not democratic. It's profoundly right. not engaged with the whole basic idea of how this country runs. Well, what do, you, what do you mean? What do you mean specifically by not democratic or the whole idea? Do you, do you mean to say that they don't believe in voting and that they believe in autocratic rule or that they're Soviet? They believe that the voters, the voters are rubes. The voters are suckers. And so the what does that mean? candidates are products and that the people who really run things um, go back behind those closed doors that Jay was talking about over at Harvard and work out the working narrative for how they're going to run these things. And that that group overlaps, that, that group of campaign managers overlaps with a group of journalists who cover this material, and they have the same kind of ideological commitment to something that's not reflective of what votes say. And we can see that in the Social Security debate as it's going on right now. There, everybody knows, that is, all the politicians know, and all the, the op-ed people know, and all the pundits know, and all the, and all the people writing the newspapers know that something has to be done about the wrecked entitlement system. And you just see Tom Friedman, Nick Kristoff, any of them say, you know, it may not have been, you know, when they talk about courageous Paul Ryan, even if they say it's really a pad plan, but it was very courageous of him to finally face up to that difficult thing that Americans have to face, and that is they're going to take their Social Security away. They're not reflecting popular opinion when they say that, and they're not reflecting anything other than the kind of group consensus on what's going on. That's what I mean. And that, well, that doesn't reflect voters' attitudes at all. The thing is, um, you know, we're getting some chat stream here. Randolph Azroff is mentioning something that's really true and, and important, which is that he says, you don't have to believe that the voters are fools to realize that we can be and often are fools.
Yes, we can. That's true. In fact, that's the grain of truth that the third-way carnival barking crowd use to tell us when we should be adopting policies that are not really in our, our interest. They just basically say, you have no idea what you're talking about. Social Security is doomed. We all know it's doomed. Anybody who knows anything about this knows Social Security is, is doomed. And, and so they use it. So there, there is that grain of truth. It is true that, that Americans are horrendously uninformed. Well, actually, most people in the world are, are not just Americans, are tremendously uninformed and, and hold wildly inaccurate ideas. But they also happen to know pretty clearly when it comes right down to it, hey, you're screwing with my old age pension. Don't do that. That's bad. And the only way that you can get people to relinquish their grip on what is their old age pension is to say it doesn't exist. It's not there. It's never going to be there. It's gone. It was stolen from you already. And that's the narrative. That's what's being put out. So it's it's not sort of fair to say that that, that people are, are idiots. It's really fair to say that I think that people are being horrendously misled and that there are literally disinformation campaigns going on. And they're not just going on from the right. They're not just going on from the movement right. They're not just going on from the Christian Broadcast Network, Pat Robertson's deal. And they're not just going on from Fox uh, Business News or, or from CNBC when Jim Cramer was on every night telling you, I know it doesn't seem right to buy their stories, but you have to. It's not just them. That's why we have a Bible speak translations, because it's the not rightist press corps also that's doing some a pretty damn good job at disinformation, as you've said, Jay. They all accept this. Well, they all accept this, and they all accept that um, they, it doesn't necessarily have to dovetail with reality. Now, Riff Paperboy in the IRC channel points out that as a journalist, he sees people, he kind of reprises Larry Summers one time saying, look, people, he opened an economics paper, uh, uh, an academic paper by saying, just look around you. There are idiots. And it is true. Riff Paperboy points out that he's gotten the phone calls, he's gotten the crazy letters, he's Look at the comment thread on any story, any large newspaper's website. The crazies out there, the ignorant are out there. People who don't know anything and are very loud about it are out there. But at the same time, if you look at the polling numbers for you know generally what public policy issues are important to people right now, they make perfect sense. I mean, it's jobs, ending, getting jobs, ending the wars, and um, fixing the healthcare system. Those are the three things that people say that they want to see done. And none of those three things match up with what's on the savvy agenda list. Nation building at home is a pretty freaking popular thing and has been basically for the past 70-something years. Right. Always popular. People people know. You know, they they want that, and they're right to want that. That's, That's a good thing. It doesn't make us less competitive as a nation to have a robust social insurance. To have a healthcare system that doesn't risk death to an entrepreneur who wants to start out on his own, that doesn't, I mean, you know, it's just so obviously the case that this is good public policy. But my point is, is that even if it's true that some voters are shockingly ignorant, um, it's also true that if you look at the polling data what we're, that we're seeing right now, they're out, of, they're out of step with what the savvy insiders are saying has to be, has to be done, but um, they are pretty hard to disagree with on a policy basis. 
Well, so you you and I are, are going to argue about something now, I think, um, because I'm going to I'm going to read you Brad DeLong's deal again. Okay. Um, and we we may argue about what a little bit about what Brad DeLong thinks now. Um, and Arguing is good. Do you, want to, do you want to tell everybody who Brad DeLong is, just in case? Brad DeLong is you know, professor of economics at Berkeley, University of California, Berkeley. He was an economist in the Treasury Department for the Clinton administration, and um, he writes a he writes a left of center economics blog, a very good one actually. You should definitely read on a routine basis, um, and. Uh, that's enough. And, and he was on the show um, a couple of weeks ago, and you should listen to that program. It was very interesting. Right. Well, we were... It was a really, really great conversation between between Jay, who's also an economist. Jay Ackroyd is also an economist. Um, uh, and and the professional economist, economist Brad DeLong, who's, who's obviously been, been at, at Treasury and been at the highest levels of, of that profession, essentially. Um, so what, what, what DeLong said in 2006 at his very good blog, was he said a bit of, of truth. He said something that was sort of like uh, like during uh, Jay Rosen and I, our program, I mentioned the Van de Heij and Harris uh, revealing uh, the centrist bias of the press. He revealed a centrist bias to the policymaking apparatus in, in, in the Beltway. He says, I am a reality-based center-left technocrat. I am pragmatically interested in government policies that work that are good for America and for the world. My natural home is in the bipartisan center, arguing with center-right reality-based technocrats about whether it is center-left or center-right policies that have the best odds of moving us towards goals that we all share. The aim of governance, I think, Brad DeLong says, is to achieve a rough consensus amongst the reality-based technocrats, and then to frame the issues in a way that attracts the ideologues on one, or ideally both, wings in order to create an effective governing coalition. Yeah. Right. Now, what he's saying there, and this is, this is what I think he's saying there, what he's saying there is that there really is a core group of people in Washington who are interested in effective governance. And that it's the job of the people who are professionals, um, and he could be saying this if he were a State Department guy as well, but from the side of the economic side, he's saying that it's our job to sit down outside of the public view and construct policies that we can agree, that we economists can agree are effective policies, and then find a way to sell them to the politicians who need a proper way of promoting those ideas, and that his job is to be a broker to the um, center-right economist who largely agrees with him but disagrees about methods and mechanisms, and that their job is to then provide policy advice to the leaders, and his job personally is to try to find ways to bring on board the other technocrats who have an ideological difference from him, but that ideological difference is a matter of degree and not a matter of uh, absolute certainty. That's what he's saying there. Now, I want you to just note that what he said in the speech at the American Economic Association, their last meeting, was that he is wrong about, he turned out to be wrong about this, that there really isn't a shared common ground between economists who are on the Keynesian left side and the economists on the real business cycle, new classical right side. They disagree on fundamental things, something as fundamental as is it a policy objective to reduce unemployment rates? 
And so he, if that vision that he outlines there, he has come to not necess- not believe is necessarily true, although he cavils about that during the discussion. So that's my reaction and, and to where, that. And where I, where I sort of take a, a different tack uh, on that is that it seems to me that if the Republican Party had not become more democratically accountable to its non-reality-based base, that Brad DeLong would be happily sitting there across the table from his counterparts like Stuart Butler at Heritage. Well, no, Martin Zandi, and in fact, we we went off in that conversation, we talked a little bit about maybe it would be less bad under a McCain administration, because... Because the Mark Zandi way of looking at things isn't like the Robert Lucas way of looking at things. He was talking about guys like Mark Zandi when he was saying the center-right and the center-left get together and give policy advice. And McCain's policy advice economics team fit that model of of, of what Brad was talking about. But Old when, Deacon. Pardon me? Doug Holt Deacon, Deacon, yeah. Right. Holt Deacon, yes, exactly. And But that's not what someone like... Robert Lucas is saying when Robert Lucas says no, you can't lower you can't lower unemployment rates by hiring people and having them build bridges. When he says um, you can't you you can't in a liquidity trap um, lend more money because it will scare the bond market. You can't the, yep. unemployment is all structural is all structural and any attempt to change any deficit spending is just going to turn into higher taxes later on. Those are not things that were a consensus point of view in Brad's mind when he wrote that 2006 paper and are things that apparently are not in the consensus now. And that's that's where that – and so, yes, I think he did believe in the thing you talk about, in there being an elite center of technocrats who work in secret devising policies in a way that's not in, at all democratic but but is right policymaking and then advises the politicians about that. Yes. And I agree with you further that – yeah. That Brad was working in in support of this idea that the New Deal had failed, that the New right. Deal, as expressed by Johnson's programs, had failed, and instead more market-oriented programs were necessary. And he talks about in our conversation, he talks about carbon taxes, which is economists generally prefer carbon tax approach, mm-hmm. uh, a, a taxation approach to command economy approach. But he, but he would have extended, I think, down to healthcare and, and supported this. What I think is a third-way healthcare approach that is not going to work and is not sound economics. Well, but, what they say is a third-way, like, you know, approach. Yes. What they've been saying in policy papers for 15, 18 years is the third-way approach to healthcare that they've been advocating for. So, so yeah, I just talked the, for a long time. So you, you talked for a long time now. Well, I, I really want to sort of get 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 to something. We spend. I spend a, a, a great deal of time trying to t- talk about how they're different from Democrats, and uh, meaning third way folks. This, this idea that, that the well, laws, don't, don't that, say the word Democrats because you're claiming that the Democratic elite that runs the country are these people. So don't say Democrats. I should not. I have been corrected, and rightfully so, because no, there are there is no such thing as quote unquote the Democrats. It's it's a ridiculous idea that that. Um, uh, that this, the you know the same guy who who put together and audit the Fed Federal Reserve bill with Ron Paul would somehow have anything in common with Tim Geithner at all. Um, so yeah, so you're right. That's re- absolutely ridiculous. But but when I say these things, when I say that um, that the third way Democrats 
are different from the other Democrats and that they represent this mini party within the Democratic Party and that they believe not only in a set of ideas about reality that are effectively that the New Deal sucked and was bad and was bad for America and is terrible and we have to tear it down in order to move forward and build a bridge into the 21st century. Now, um, folks, just a second. Stuart yeah. is not exaggerating at all. You need to no. read some of this material. And um, if you go to Abaddon's other blog, you'll see some of that material. And, Stuart, you need to post more of it because, because it literally is, is what it literally says. He's not exaggerating one one iota. Uh, I, I, I'm not. When you hear people talk about uh, – the the Ryan plan and how it's this you know the Paul Ryan from Wisconsin the representative from Wisconsin who came up with the 2012 budget the his it's called the path to prosperity and in it in it, in this budget plan he 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 advocates for doing essentially the equivalent of what just passed in healthcare reform the PPACA the Patient Protection and That's Affordable right. Care Act uh, so to speak um, he advocates doing that this exchange, you've heard about these health insurance exchanges, these exchanges that are supposed to be set up in, by 2014, we think maybe unless there are waivers, unless some states get more waivers, unless there are more waivers, who knows. But these exchanges that are meant to accommodate the, the uninsured and that are the thing that everybody's going to be mandated, individually mandated, required to buy upon uh, you know penalty of fine, et cetera, um, he, wa- he wants to do that to Medicare. He wants to make an exchange for Medicare where instead of Medicare existing the way it is now, he wants to do something incredibly radical and, and like sort of unbelievable. Um, he wants to make Medicare not like Social Security in which everybody gets it and it's there and there's no question about it. He wants to make a government program, a social government social insurance program that's just run. He wants to make it an exchange whereby health insurers like Blue Cross Blue Shield and Cigna and Aetna and Humana, et cetera, I'll, I'll, you know, you buy policies when, when, when you're a senior, and you buy health insurance policies from some exchange. And that's radical, and that's un- unbelievable. It's, it's, un- it's, an, it's a completely tearing down Medicare. Does, I mean, Jay, does that sound like Medicare as you know it? Does that sound like the New Deal social insurance program? No, no, that's the idea. The idea is to convert the New Deal protection from the middle class into protections for poor people, and then gradually right. gut them. I mean, right. It, but that's, there, a, but that's a, the thing is that's a, that's a Democratic plan. The yeah. Ryan plan, the one that just came out in the past prosperity 2012 budget, has been advocated by a think tank called the Progressive Policy Institute, from which apparently all elite Democratic policies come, with which I think Brad DeLong and his market-based solutions would agree largely, mostly, apart from this little tweak about whether there's an independent payment advisory board or not. That's, you know, that's the difference between those two plans. This is a democratic plan. And when I say democratic plan, of course I mean, Jay, before you correct me again rightly, I mean a third-way democratic plan, not the democratic plan that any of us out here being Democrats, liberal Democrats, would actually recognize in any way as being the legacy of something built by Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Nothing I'm, like that. I'm, I'm posting in the chat the David Kendall piece from, uh, I don't know when it was, 2005, from the Progressive uh, 2010 Policy. Was, was the, 2010 was the, was the last one that, in which he was having the argument with Jacob Hacker. I've got the one, Fixing American's Healthcare System, 2005. Oh, yeah, that one. Right. 
Well, but the point so, is, so folks, and, and I'm going to post... It's documented. It's there. I'm going to post these into both both chat chat realms. But the point is, is that, again, there's no exaggeration here. They really are talking about essentially adopting a relatively minor change to the heritage plan in order to make markets work inside healthcare through these exchanges. Now we've been we've seen this movie before. That's what happened with the HMOs back in the late seventies, early eighties. That was intended to be a market solution. So it's become competition among the HMOs. And that would lead to better care. More preventative care was the intention. Because since you'd be responsible for the entire life of the patient, you're better off having him lose weight and quit smoking than you are treating him with uh, fee for service monies. But that didn't work. It didn't work for a variety of reasons. So they're trying to do it again and again. There's no, as I can't remember where I read it this weekend, but somebody else said, the way Krugman has said, that markets don't work in medical care. You can't comparison shop for your ambulance when you're lying there in the street. You can't you can't comparison shop in your emergency room treatment. And when someone tells you you're going to get cancer and you're going to die unless you're treated, um, you're not going to question really the price involved. So it's got to be done in some kind of national cooperative way, and that's just the solution that makes sense. And, uh, you know, the idea that markets will solve this is just wrong. But well, this, is, this is the demo. They but say this, that price control doesn't work, et cetera, et cetera, but, but, but the, 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 I guess the, the rest of the OECD. Well, uh, right. That's, that's the thing is, is that is the strange thing about the, 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 the center-left technocrats is that they – on the one hand, when it comes to foreign policy, they really love to imagine that we're at the head of this gigantic coalition of, 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 of friendly, like, you know, like states, and, and that uh, we're, we're inflicting our, our visions on the world together, uh, neoliberalism. And, and at the same time, they love to just pretend that the entire OC, OECD world, the entire wealthy, healthy world, everybody out there, the entire world of, of, of Britain and France and Germany and Sweden and Norway and Italy and Canada and Australia and Japan, you know, like all the, all the really rich, extremely rich countries whose populations are really healthy and, and really well taken care of by their states and by their economies. Uh, they love to pretend that, those, that, those, that that whole world doesn't exist. And that's how you get Max Baucus getting in there saying the uniquely American solution and we're not importing from Canada, et cetera, et cetera, as this guy Kendall says, oh, the perniciousness of importing the Canadian solution. But I, I, really, I really wanted to, to, to say that it, we, we, I spend a, a bunch of time saying, you know, hey, look, there's this thing that's here, and it's, and it's different. It's different than, than what uh, liberal Democrats think it is. And... What I don't spend enough time, I think, addressing, maybe, um, and we don't spend enough time m maybe talking about, is getting to the other side of that argument. Because people um, who, who I respect a great deal, uh, you know, like, uh, say, the, the eminent Avedon Carroll, um, would just say, look, they're rightists. They're just not as right-wing as the other rightists, the ones in the Republican Party. They're all right-wing. They all serve corporate interests. They're all on the same team, essentially. And I think that that's, uh, I think that we have to really, really try very hard to, to say what Jay Rosen said in the previous segment, which is that it's complicated. It's not as simple as saying there's a plutocracy and you're an elite or you're not an elite, and they're just representing their class interests. And that's it. It's simple. It's a simple story. We can tell it over and over again. They're corporate. They're bad. They're corporate. They're bad. 
They're right wing. They're right wing. They're right wing. Um, that in and of itself is, is it carries a certain kind of ideology about where right wing is right wing you know uh, conservatism comes from, and it, it it implies to a certain degree. It implies, I think, to to an important degree that that rightism, popular rightism, is somehow some sort of top down phenomenon, in which pop, whole populations of people are being duped into believing in movement conservatism by their rich overlords who spoon feed this ideology to them and, you know, make, make sure it happens and control our discourse and our corporate overlords make rightism and, and make popular rightism so they can control us and that that's what's, that's what's going on. And I think that misreads what the nature of conservatism is. And I think it misreads it fundamentally because I think that uh, conservatism is, a, is a, to a great degree a part of how human beings have existed for a really long time. Uh, they didn't have new deals. They had kings. You know, they didn't. They didn't. They didn't have uh, the idea of progress or modernism or going forward. They tried to just keep who the heck they were. They tried to. They. 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 People genuinely come up with traditionalism on their own. You know, they don't. They don't. Um, they don't need to be taught it. They don't need to be spoon fed it. They don't. It, it's something that arises uh, naturally, as it arises naturally from movements to change things as well. We don't need a vanguard party of super informed and great and ideologically pure people on the left to take the revolution to the masses when things need to change. No, in East Germany they knew, they all knew that the, the Stasi was, was terrible and wrong and bad and that they needed something else. They could all see they all had relatives in West Germany who were doing much better than in East Germany. Um, and having much better lives, and they knew this, and they knew that they were being uh, they were being a satellite of of, the, of, of Russia. They knew it, um, and so it didn't. It, they didn't need to have uh, an elite tell them to change things either, and we didn't need to have an elite tell us to change things during the New Deal when when people said, "No, this is terrible. This the way that things have been going. Robber Baron capitalism is you know all the banks losing their money in a day is." It's wrong. It's bad. We can't. We can't do this. So I think it's a mistake to characterize rightism as being something that's top down. Just as it's a mistake to characterize it as, as being a, a, a as, as liberalism being a top down. No, I don't see how right. I don't see how you reconcile that with your belief in the disinformation programs. Well, the thing is, Jay, that hold that, on. Uh, but to do that, you've got to, you've got to tell the story of disinformation first. Okay. And well. This, 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 well, this, think about disinformation. Think about what DeLong said. I mean, when you think about disinformation, achieve a rough consensus among center-right and center-left, and then go frame the issues in a way that attracts the ideologues? On no, I'm talking, I'm talking about the disinformation campaign, because you just said that this is not top-down. But you also told me I was traveling the week that uh, the, uh, the business about the the cultural right. center near the World Trade Center was happening. But you'd said that the New York Post has been given away for free a couple of days that week um, right. containing um, top, what was top-down messaging from the right wing. All right, well, well, yes, okay. Um, uh, telling the story, telling the story is that, is that it, 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 during that week when, when Jay was away, um, the, the controversy over the terror, uh, uh, over the mosque, you know, the 9-11, Hallowed Ground, Sacred Down, you know, mosque was, was erupting. And it was really interesting to me at the time because uh, at the time it was a big deal was being made of it and 
you know, Representative Peter King, that jackass um, from New York, was, was starting to talk about how this is terrible and awful and terrible. And, Long Island, please. Right, exactly. Well, the, the former IRA supporter from Long Island, Peter King. Right. Um, so, so that guy, that guy was going on, and and New Yorkers sort of laughed about it. You know, it's sort of like, oh God, there's like some national controversy about this. We, I remember, you know, you, you see it on CNN, and you're like, controversy erupting, erupting in, in New York, and there wasn't. It just, it just, it, you know, the sense of it. I remember New York One was doing, you know, hey, so what do you think about it this morning? Oh, I don't know. It's a, uh, you know, it's a uh, religion. I don't know. You know, people people didn't have a sense of that, that there was this outrage, there was this, you know, any sort of problem really at all, other than there was some weird swirling controversy at the national level. And then the week you went away happened. And the week that Jay went away, um, there was a free New York Post. It was the strangest thing. Just FYI, um, the New York Post is a right of center, far right of center tabloid that specializes in... Um Fairly, it's a tabloid. It's I, I don't know it's how it's a tabloid. It. Yeah, it, um, it yeah, and it's owned by Rupert Murdoch. Right. So it, it, it's it's owned by Rupert, the same guy who owns you know Fox News and the Wall Street Journal. And it loses money. And it loses. Yes, it does. Um, and and the New York Post is is sort of notable for how tabloid how how it really really is the the, the London newspaper model. Brought to the brought to the metropolis of New York, where there's no pretension at all that they're doing anything but entertaining you. Um, you know, Cobra Loose. You know, they're they're all over that story. Um, they're they're over any sensationalized story they they can they can they can do. But they all, they're they're extremely right wing. Um, uh, they treat with hostility and suspicion. Uh, you know, the Democratic Party and anybody to the right uh, to the left of um, the, the GOP establishment of Mitch, Mitch McConnell, um, anybody who, who's, who, who, who characterizes themselves in any way as other than conservative, they have hostility for. Um, and so they, they put out this paper, and they, they normally charge 50 cents for it. And this week, as the quote-unquote crisis was unfolding, the controversy was erupting over the mosque, um, I saw the strangest thing happen. I saw the whole Mr. Smith goes to Washington tailor machine happen. You remember that movie, Jay? You remember Mr. Smith yes. goes to Washington? Jimmy Stewart? I remember that whole the tailor machine, the, the people who put Jimmy Stewart in the office as senator, and then when he, when he screws up and defies their will, they, the tailor machine springs into action, and newspapers are generated, and, and you know, public opinion is, is molded, et cetera, et cetera. You remember that whole... Scene, and then yes, they I drive do. the Boy Scouts, they drive the Boy Rangers off the road as they scream and try to tell the truth and suppress them and drag them out of the, the meeting hall, the town hall. Um, well, that happened. I saw that happen. I saw day after day, uh, free post. You get out of the subway, free post here. It wasn't like post here. It was free post. It was that they opened up the the... The, the whole newspaper and said and basically said we're giving it away take it take it take it take it take it and and they were out in force Jay you know that they they're out you know some of the time and they 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 come out some of the time they hawk their papers some of the time and then they leave a little room for the metro guys that's another free uh, daily paper that people are supposed to you know occupy their minds on the subway with um, they came out in force I saw overwhelming numbers of post guys with 
stacks of newspapers out on the streets, and they were all yelling, Terror Mosque. And that was what the headline was. Free post, Terror Mosque, free post. That was what the headline was on, on the paper for like seven consecutive days. So Terror Mosque, 9-11 sacrilege, 9-11, you know, uh, profanity, you know, terror. They, they were putting it in headline terms in the most uh, sensational, certainly, way. But the way that was being screamed out of Rush Limbaugh's mouth every single day was also happening on the streets of my city. And lo and behold, at the end of this week, the polls had changed. Lo and behold, the polls of New Yorkers who were suddenly troubled by the possibility of there being some kind of monument to terrorists right next to the monument to, to, to the 9-11 victims had, had gone the other way. And we went from, you know, 40-something percent of people going, oh, that could be bad, to 60% of people going, oh, that's bad. And it happened, just like the Taylor machine made it happen in the old Jimmy Stewart and I saw so, 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 now, so now I ask you to reconcile right. that with the claim that this is not top-down. Um, because it's not that conservatism uh, is the same thing as this 9-11 mosque happening. Uh, it, it's, it's, uh, that's, that's a really incoherent way of saying it. Well, let me put. Let me ask a question differently. Um, during the research 2000 polls that ended up being discredited, and oh you know, no, those are totally discredited. Yes, but but one of the things that I thought was interesting is that when people were asked the crazy questions, when the Republicans were asked the crazy questions, the birther questions, um, more many more than usual said, "I don't know" or "I don't have an opinion." You know, it was like a third, a third, a third instead of the usual, you know, 45, 45, 10, or 55, 55. It was, you know, a third almost regularly. And, again, I, I, you know, as polls are discredited, I wouldn't put any any kind of weight on anything because they were, they were providing Marcos what he wanted to hear as, as they apparently did to all their clients. But I did think when I was looking at that that the, the reason those numbers were so high is they knew what the right answer was as – part of the party, and they knew what the right answer was in part of reality, and a lot of people didn't want to make that choice. So they know what the message is. Well, I don't want to, I, I, I can't talk about those polls because they're freaking discredited, um, but what I, what, I can, what I can do is I can say that nobody needed, um, that nobody needed a paper like the New York Post to convince them of uh, of 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 nativism, you know, N nativism is something that that isn't that is expressed ideologically in conservative ideology, in as much as that it's part of a traditionalist veneration, and so people genuinely feeling pride in, in who they are and their heritage and where they come from and their families and their and their people and their country and their nation. Um, is made fetishized and made outsized and aggrandized and distorted by conservative ideology. It's, 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 it's fetishized. It's made into something that's unrecognizable. It's caricatured. It's jingoist. It's bloody flag, you know, waving. Um, but it doesn't take a paper to make people believe 
good things about themselves and their own traditions. Um, and so I would say that it's not that the top, that the controversy was top down and the disinformation was top down, but it's appealing to something that's already there. And that yeah. something that's already there is not necessarily even conservative ideology. It's what conserv it's the grain of truth that conservative ideology exploits in how right. people are. You know, does that, does that make sense? Does that sure. reconcile those two things? Sure. The thing is, though, that well, I, you know, it's like it reminded me of an exhibition that was just at the Guggenheim of um, you know of, of 1930s Italy and Germany, especially Italy, where they were really appealing to home and family and all these other things in order to promote fascism. Um, so yes, I understand what you're saying, but if those things are there anyway. It's one thing, but if you have political leaders who are purposely manipulating people's points of view by appealing falsely to the heartstrings that are tugging on those people. Isn't that top-down? I think that disinformation campaigns, by their very nature, are, 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 are almost always top-down. I mean, that's true. Um, that there's, no, there's no question about that. Um, and convincing people to do something or to, to, to focus on something uh, instead of what's in their, uh, you know, what they would recognize themselves as being in their, in their interests, is certainly a, a technique from the top, whether it's from the center or because they're in, in power, and I can't even say it's from the left because there's no left in power to actually top down anything to, but for, whether it's from the center or whether it's from the right in this country uh, or, or whether it's for, from the self-interested you know, press corps itself, the, the sort of uncaring, unprincipled market machine media it's, it, disinformation is also happening, and it's not ideologically based. Um, so it does happen. It is top-down, but the appeal to the whoa, thing... Whoa, 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 whoa. It's not ideologically based? No. Aren't you claiming centrism as an ideology? Um, I, I, guess, I guess I'm not... I'm, uh, I sound like I'm contradicting myself. I'm not. I'm, I'm saying TMZ.com or Perez Hilton or Entertainment Tonight or Hollywood Access, or Talk Soup, uh, those, are, those are not ideologically driven, and yet they're, they're misinforming people all the time. Right. Um, and and, and they're, they're taking away the, the substance of what's really important for, for people to, to think about and to consider, and but, they're but, proffering but as news, as information, it's things fine. that are Get not that. information. Got that, and we had so, some of that in the chat stream too. Is that the presence of reality TV is a sign of something? But but right. but when but when everybody when everybody who goes on to the Sunday morning shows and everybody who writes in the op-ed pages of the New York or the Washington papers, that everybody knows that Social Security has to be fixed, that everybody knows Medicare has to be cut, that everybody knows that these crises here are going to destroy the economy. Isn't that top-down ideological conversation? It, it sure is. And it, is that not misinformation, disinformation? It, it sure is. It's absolutely, you know, hey, uh, you know, Paul Krugman says it's zombie lies. It is. It's absolutely disinformation. But what it's not, Jay, is it's not turning people, transforming them from New Dealers, as you know, in as much as that, they uh, they 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 uh, reject the whole idea of of social.
social insurance, being a part of a, a massive social insurance scheme that's going to be there for them at the end of the day, and that that's something that they do for each other because they're Americans, because they're all on the same team. Uh, it doesn't turn people into uh, libertarians. It doesn't, it doesn't make them become right-wing. It doesn't, it doesn't, say to, it doesn't take what, what used to be um, a, uh, people who, who, above all, prized progress, prized moving forward, prized rising above, prized uh, working hard to overcome uh, institutional injustices that affect everybody and make everybody's lives worse and really trying to make, you know, life and, and political life be about that and turning them into, hey, my own freaking backyard, let me just tend my own garden, I have my farm, I'm going to try to keep it that way and get some together with my neighbors in church, maximum. Right? That we're a community in Christ, but that's about it. Right? That's, that's not, do you understand what I'm saying? It's not, it's not making people conservative, it's just making people uninformed. It's just a right. disinformation campaign. Right, but that disinformation campaign is intended to see division and to create conflict and to in inflame divisions among people by the conservative people who are running the disinformation campaign. By the what ones conservative who are people who are running the disinformation campaign? Rupert, Rupert, Rupert Murdoch. I started well, there. Okay, that's a partisan thing. Rupert Murdoch's organization would like to see Republicans in office. That's what they would like to see. They're, it's pretty naked. It's pretty out there. It's pretty, pretty much open. They would like to see Republicans in office. And if they can get people to think things that Republicans are saying and hopefully therefore trust and vote for Republicans, they will. And that's what, this is that's what the mosque thing was really about. It was about using, it, using this as an opportunity, experience as an opportunity to say, hey, there's this, this invading force, this horrible invading force that, that is, is, is sacrilegious and spits on you and, and your tragedy and your, your, your grief. And here they are. And, who, and, and look, look at the Democrats. Look at the liberals. Look at them side with the, the, the terrorists. They love terrorists. They pal around with terrorists. Look at that. And that's a partisan thing. That's not an ideological thing. It's not, it's not, it's not, uh, nobody, nobody became more conservative because of it. They just became more partisan GOP because of it. They became less trustful of, uh, of, of Democrats and liberals and people who might say, ah, well, you know, they got a right to kind of build down there and, you know, they got rights and, you know, there's a freedom and why, why are we, you know, this is a whole bill of rights in the country. You know what I'm saying, Jay? It's not, yeah, it's, not that, it's not that they were making conservatives out of non-conservatives. They, uh, they were making Republicans is what they were doing. They were making partisans. They were making a, a residents of a party line. And they, yes, top-down helped public opinion change to favor the Republicans' line. But they didn't make and, – and so that's the, that's the rightist machine. And, that's the, and, and the popular rightist machine is really good at speaking to ordinary people. You know, the, you ever you read the New York Post lately, Jay? Uh, I re I read the news sometimes. I seldom read the Post. The Post is entertaining as hell if you have nothing to do, and you don't really want to think about stuff that you know is hard to deal with and try to figure out what the 
crap is he saying and do I have to go look that up and what the, why is that important to me? If you don't care about any of those things, if you're just as happy reading the cartoons and you're just as happy reading the oh, they have, pages. They have terrible cartoons. Well, the reason, the one reason I don't read the post is the cartoons are terrible. The Daily News well, used to have four pages of cartoons. Yeah, they, they don't really, but, but what, they, what they lack in cartoons, they really make up in headlines and, 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 and front-page stories. Right, I posted a link, actually, to, um, to, the, to the post front page. And, yeah, it's, you know, murder and mayhem. and, and they, they really do a great job. If, if you wanted to communicate to people who didn't think of themselves as an elite class of educated people who deserved the professional jobs that they had, you know, if you really wanted to do a, a, a good job of communicating to those people, you'd have something like what the Post does. If, if you, can, you wanted to, like, make a ton of money and at the same time try to, to elect Republicans. You would, you would do that. Well, aside from the the, um, the masters, the headlines right now are a woman hacked to death and how far dashed jet girls dream. Wow. That, that those are our two lead stories on the front page of the uh, legs severed in drunken D train mishap. Rubber wow. rumors shell out for okay to teach again. Speaking about teachers who'd been rubber rooms where they used to put bad teachers and take them away from classrooms. Queen's Idol cast off Pia, Pia Toscano gets record deal. And what's next? Sheen stage fright torpedoes ticks dollars. So wow. yeah, that's that's that the front. is some entertaining stuff, Jay. Not, maybe maybe not to you. Maybe you'd rather read about like whether you know coal clean coal technology is really clean or not. Maybe that's important <laughs> to you. You know. But, oh, but that's not really I want to get that on the show again. <laughs> we but never get that. The, the, the point being that it's not just the rightest media that disinforms. As you keep saying, everybody says, hey, Fareed Zagaria is going to say, we really must do something about entitlements if we are going to survive as a country. He's going to say that. He will say it. If he hasn't said it already, he will. Uh, Tom Friedman will get on and, and he'll and he'll say, but you know what we really have to do is we just we gotta just junk all this stuff we've been doing before and we gotta start over with some really good new ideas that match the new way of doing things that the entire flat world and digital economy and 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 new economics you know is making possible and inevitable. That's what Tom Friedman and when he says junk the old way of doing things he means the New Deal he means Social Security. He's just setting the story stage for that. It's not just the right who who are who are disinforming at all. And it's and it's a mistake to do this. All I'm saying is that, that rightism itself is a popular phenomenon. You can go to any freaking country in the world and you will have people who are traditionally more for their village and, you know, kinda not for those village people over there and why did he marry that girl from that village? Weren't the girls here good enough? You know? You can go there and you can see it and you can see them attached to their traditions and attached to their folkways and attached to who they are and prideful. You know, proud. Hey, we speak this language after a thousand years. We're still speaking it. We are who we are, and we're okay with that. Look, here's our team. People are like this, and 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 actually, it's it's pretty good that they're like this. It's sort of like an extension of their family. It's how people, and and I think it's important for for liberals to recognize this and to to sort of know and understand and be okay with this. That that's okay. That's fine. That this is the mechanism by which people go and save their their neighbors from from burning buildings. Hey, unions come to mind when you talk like this. About the idea that, you know, you're all in this together, all the workers are all part of one big community. I'm not making any sense at all. Jay, you gotta help me here. I'm not making any sense at all. Avedon in, in chat here, live in, in chat, Avedon Carroll just said, What? They want their daughters to marry the village people? 
I know what you're saying here. What, Avalon, what, what, what Stuart's saying is that there are really some kind of fundamental community spirited things that are in everybody. And inside of that, there's some of it that's um, tribal and some of it's, that's, you know, borderline racist and some of it's, um, and a desire to be around the people that you know and around the people that are like you and who share your traditions, who look back a generation or two and share traditions back to that, those last two generations and really don't want to see those traditions trampled upon. They really want to see those traditions kept. And so, you know, you, your Christmas, the way you celebrate Christmas might be something that's, that goes back a generation or two. It's the case in my family, at least. Our Christmas celebration is, you know, about 100 years old now. And it's the one that the, my wife's family has used for 100 years. And those kinds of things really ring in people's heads. They really feel the, the tradition and the value of preserving, of conserving these ideas and conserving um, the things that have made them what they are. And that people like Mussolini and people like um, Fox News tries to make people feel threatened that these traditions are going to be lost to them. And so, and so, and these these are not evil, these are not bad things. The idea that you know your church is your father's church was his father's church was his father's church is something that's that people prize, and right. that it creates an opportunity a a, a and, way. And, in, Excuse me, and, excuse me, just, just, and, as we're talking about it, as we're saying it, and that people are like this doesn't mean that they're conservative. It doesn't mean that they are naturally, you know, uh, uh, willing to sign up with whatever policy the Heritage Foundation or American Enterprise Institute is selling. We are not a center-right nation, as John freaking Meacham likes to pontificate and, and, and proclaim because of this. It doesn't mean that, that somehow liberalism is against all that, that we're, we're, we're not for that, that, we're, that no, no, we're not proud of who we are. We're not – do you understand, Jay? That, yeah, no, I, I, I've, I've, I've talked to you before about this, and I, and I get what you're trying to say. Um, but at the same time, there's bad stuff in there too. And, sure, and but it's not top-down. It's not top. It's not top down. Even though there are disinformation campaigns going on, it's not. It, it, you can reconcile the fact that that's happening with the fact that there's a lot of bad information. But you can't say, oh, and as a result, conservatism comes into being because it's being fomented by, you know, the elites. And if elites, rightist elites, and corporate oligarchs and plutocrats weren't there making it, it would somehow be different. You know what I mean? That kind of I lets us off mean. the hook, doesn't it? You know? Well, but oh, I also... It's fault. No, but I, yeah, I understand that. I understand the argument you're making against it. We've got seven minutes, and um, I want to make sure that we end smoothly and not messily, so I'll keep an eye on that. Um, the thing okay. is, is that, is that there's still... I mean, Avedon's also responding in a way as well, you know? Um, that that there there is also a tradition of the ones that she so brilliantly talked about in her in her two minutes about about what she believes in, and what Avedon talked about is things that are central, like the golden rule and the importance of community and the importance of sharing and things that underlie what we would call American liberal values, but also what we would call just generally American values, and those are not things that say stay keep my boy away from that girl. They're not don't marry somebody in the other side of town. They're let's make the other side of town part of our community. They're an openness and a sharing kind of traditions that are at least as important and at least as easy to appeal to. And so 
you know, the idea that that it's uniquely conservative ideas that that harken back to these traditions, I think, is also wrong. I, I wasn't saying that, and I think that's that's a, that's absolutely correct. And maybe does that help? Does that Avedon, if I hope that helps you understand what Stuart's trying to say here, that these traditions aren't just um, that they're not traditions that are belittling or in conflict with the same kind of spontaneous uprising. Spontaneous. I remember the day that that Obama they declared victory for Obama, and people were in the streets hugging each other. You know, there was a sense of community and a sense of you know we we've had a chance to do something. We've had a chance to Change. make progress. Change. Yes, yes, we can. Yes, we yes, can. We can. And yes, change. we did. We can do it. We can change things. And that's also part of the American tradition, yes, and also part exactly. of people's lives. And right. and and Obama very effectively appealed to those things in us. Yes. That that there's something that's really wrong right now, and we can fix it. And the the to me the sin is that he he just lied. <laughs> you know. Well, yeah, yeah. Um, but he didn't, and we didn't. I didn't do a very good job, of, uh, or, and we didn't really, we didn't really get to like why it's not Obama's a right wing guy, and the the conservatives are just more right wing than him, the right wing guy. We didn't really, we didn't really. Obama didn't lie and say that he was uh, a liberal and then turn out to be a a rightist. He, uh, unless you think anything to the left of Dennis Kucinich, excuse me, anything to the right of Dennis Kucinich is right wing, and it's not. It's not. It's not the case. Um, right. You know, Sotomayor is on the court because this guy's not a rightist. Alito is on the court because Bush came from the establishment right. But we're still in Afghanistan. We're still in Iraq. We're now in Libya. But we are torturing. We're, we're not going to try people. We're not going to let people out of jail who were tortured into confessing to things. We're not going to revise the health care system to work the way it does in the rest of the OECD. We're not taking Social Security off the table. Uh, we're not even making sure that women in Washington, D.C. can get health care services. I mean, you know, sure. Oh, we saved Planned Parenthood. We saved the Democrats, saved Planned Parenthood. They saved the hostage population. We should be grateful to them. Historically. It was a, it was a historic deal. <laughs> Um, I have to read this from from Avedon in chat because it's so it's so important and maybe we can address this uh, on, on another Thursday. show. I, I think on it's Thursday. really important Thursday. I hope to God we can uh, and hope hope we can we can do a good do it justice. This thought she says you have to remember that classic American conservatism in the 20th century was something inside the context of liberal government and that's not the conservatism we have now. We have two parties that are acting outside of American liberal government. And that's that's an unimpeachable statement, Jay. It is, except I, I except I would I would say the word liberal might be not even appropriate there because I keep saying to it's you American. these are American values. It's American government. It's American government that the Congress represent the people and yeah. not and that the Senate Democratic values. Democratic values, meaning Democratic. small d. That's we get ninety seconds, and I'm going to wrap up, folks. Do keep All right, in mind. Time. 
Tuesday, Susie Madrax, again, new time, 9 p.m. Tuesday. She'll be on with Nicole Sandler, radio personality and um, and liberal. <laughs> and then on this Thursday, virtually speaking A to Z, Stuart and I will continue this discussion in one way or another. And after that, after an hour of that, if you can take another hour of that, we'll have Marcy <laughs> Wheeler will be here with, with the Council of Foreign Relations, John Campbell, former ambassador to Nigeria. And John and Marcy will talk about the conflict between diplomacy, democracy, candor, and confidentiality, the effect WikiLeaks has had on that. And as I said to Jay at the very beginning of the program, this all comes from comments that he and, uh, and James Fallows had about how unhappy many State Department people were with the WikiLeaks cable releases. So I'm, again, very grateful to Jay and, and to Jim Fallows for bringing that up and leading to several conversations from there. And um, next Sunday, Susie Madrak and Eve Gilson will be on Virtually Speaking Sundays. Oh, and, I'm calling in. I am calling oh, yeah. in. Yeah, you'll need to. I won't be there. Widget's going to be hosting that night. So, folks, thank you so much for joining us. Stuart, thank you for hanging in there. Two hours is hey, a long time. Hey, thank, thanks so much for listening to us. It's, uh, it's a great, great pleasure to speak to thoughtful people like our audience. Thank you. Thank you. Good night. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.